0: e-telligence energizing your email marketing with kate barrett brought to you by e-focus marketing
1: hi and welcome to another episode of e today is our monthly e-telligence masterclass where we dig down into a specific area of email marketing to help you increase your results i'm kate barrett the founder of efocus marketing a specialist email marketing agency helping you to use email more intelligently and i'm your host for today this month it is my absolute pleasure to welcome rory sutherland from ogilvy rory is the vice chairman of ogilvy and co-founder of a behavioral science practice within the agency rory was previously a copywriter and creative director for Ogilvy for over 20 years, having joined as a graduate trainee in 1988. He has been president of the IPA, chair of the judges for the direct jury at Cannes, and has spoken at TED Global. He writes regular columns for The Spectator, Market Leader, and Impact, and also occasional pieces for Wired. He is the author of two books, The Wiki Man, and his most recent title, Alchemy, the surprising power of ideas that don't make sense. So Rory, welcome and thank you so much for taking the time to join me on today's masterclass.
0: Ah, It's a pleasure to be here.
1: So Rory, I've seen you speak at various events, and I'm an avid follower of yours on Twitter. Your insight into customer behavior is absolutely fascinating. So I wanted to invite you on the podcast today to pick your brains on the topic, particularly in regards to email marketing. But before we jump into that in more detail, can you tell us a little bit more about your fascinating work at Ogilvy?
0: Well, what it is, it really dates back strangely to about 1990 or 1991, And working in direct marketing, of course, you got results. I mean, we always talk about digital marketing as if it's the first marketing that gave you direct and measurable feedback. But of course, this isn't true. Direct marketing was doing this in, actually, in the late 19th century. Um, Probably the earliest use uh, was largely, you know, coupon keys on, on press advertisements, direct response press advertisements, which allowed you to measure and test different creative approaches and, of course, different media. And so this isn't anything new, and very quickly when you do this, what emerges is that there are huge areas of human behaviour which don't conform to what you might call conventional economic logic. I think one of the earliest experiments was one where we tested whether it was necessary to allow people to respond by post and by phone or whether you could simply uh, offer a phone number and not bother with a postal response to a direct mail drop. And I think we had three cells of 50,000 people selected at random, obviously, and you had phone only, post only. And uh, what happened then uh, was... um, Weird, in that the response rate when you offered people a choice of response mechanisms was almost the sum total of the response rate when you only offered people one or another. Now, if you think about that, you'd think people either want the product or you or they don't. And the means by which they can buy it or the channel by which they should respond, you'd expect it to have some effect because people have preferences over how they respond. You know, you'd expect it to have a sort of small, you know, point three percent difference because i don't know people who just hate using the phone like my teenage children although they obviously weren't born at the time um people who hate using the phone would be more reluctant to respond if there were only a phone option uh you know people who couldn't leave the house would be slightly less keen to respond if there was only a postal option so you would expect it to have an effect but you wouldn't expect it to have such a huge effect as that where it was something like 4% 4% post only, 2% phone only, and 5.9% for both. Time after time, you'd start seeing these findings where if you'd given them to an economist, they would have been unable to make sense of them. And they were completely contrary to the standard logic of how we like to believe we make decisions. We like to say, well, why, why did you respond to that uh uh, that offer of a BT um, Select service offer, and we'd say, well, because I thought at two pounds ninety nine a month it was worth having for the convenience of being able to divert my call to my mobile phone. We give her all those answers. We would never say, oh, because it offered a postal option to respond as well as a phone one. No one would ever have said that. But for a, you know, you know, in some cases as many as four percent of, the, or, or the majority of the people who responded, that seemed to be the decisive factor. And so, as far back as then, I realized there's a whole area of science here which marketing understands, in a sense. Direct marketers always knew that there were little, apparently irrational little tricks of the trade that you could deploy that had an extraordinarily high effect. My view was it was much more important than this, that actually we needed almost a whole new science, a whole new discipline. You know, we had a creative discipline, we had a media and targeting discipline. We also needed a discipline that understood this stuff to complete the set. And um, so, I, you know, I went around believing that for ages, that we actually had, if you like, a missing department within the ad agency, which said, um, have you thought about, you know, for example, uh, yes, it's quite a good idea what you've done there. Have you thought about presenting the choice in the opposite order? Or have you thought of including a fax response? Bear in mind, this was 1990, <laughs> because that would probably, you know, increase response further. All that kind of stuff struck me as having just as big an effect as, many of the other things that we focused on, and yet not to have a specialism attached to it. And so years later, really, I mean, this was in the um, uh, early 2000s, I discovered, by reading widely about economics, funnily enough, I discovered there was this sort of burgeoning discipline called behavioural economics, nudge theory, which essentially focused on exactly this kind of thing and um i thought finally here's the uh, i've often called it the thing for which we have no name because i always knew then there needed to be an area of study around this but we didn't really have a word for it we had a word for media we had a word for creative we didn't have a word for all the other stuff and, you know, for want of anything better, behavioural economics or behavioural science uh, is essentially the word we mostly use. And then when I finished as president of the IPA, I'd obviously made my IPA presidency very much about promoting this. And let me let me tell you, by the way, why it's very important in a, in a single sentence, which is the effectiveness of marketing is not additive, it's multiplicative. So if you have, you know, great creative and terrible media it's a terrible campaign. If you have great media and terrible creative, it's a terrible campaign. And likewise, you can have great media, great creative and terrible behavioral science, and what you do still won't work very well. And so you need to get all three, you you know this perfectly well, you need to get everything in alignment for marketing to really work its magic to the full. So it's vitally important we do in an agency Uh, have a discipline that looks at this, because if you don't have this discipline in-house, it's perfectly possible for everybody else to do a really, really brilliant job, but for the thing not, your marketing not to work, because you've just got one fundamental thing wrong. And so you you can use this understanding of, essentially how people really make decisions and of course the, the path dependency and time dependency of decisions you can use it quite often to spot situations where everything else about something is right but you've just got the behavioral science wrong and I, I always find it very interesting because um, if you use this lens you can also look at quite a lot of very very successful tech companies and you can spot what made them magically successful. So Uber, if you think about it, is an extraordinarily clever piece of design in terms of the information it gives you at every stage of the taxi booking process. And what Uber does ingeniously is it solves maybe nine or ten of the psychological friction points of booking a taxi. And as a result... Regardless of whether it's cheaper or not, it simply makes the process of booking a taxi, waiting for a taxi, boarding a taxi, um, riding in a taxi and exiting the taxi and paying. It makes all of those things almost an order of magnitude easier than they were before.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: I mean, one of the biggest things it does, which nobody talks about, a lot of people and myself included have talked about the map. A lot. But it does something more important than that, which is before you even book a you know you book a journey, it gives you an expectation of waiting time. Now if you think about it, when you phone for a taxi, you have to commit to a phone call before you have any idea about whether the estimate's gonna be three minutes or thirty. And one of the things Uber does is it gives you an idea before you even sort of Uh, commit to pressing any kind of button it gives you a kind of expectation one of the things that will do by the way is if it says 15 minutes and the final verdict's 11 weirdly you're not cross that you're waiting 11 minutes it's better than you expected or better than you were led to expect and therefore you're actually surprisingly content so it does some valuable expectation management as well as providing you with information
1: Fantastic! Oh, I bet I bet your days are just absolutely fascinating. Looking at all of these different areas, I think that for me is such an important area that so many marketers forget about. You know, like you say, within Ogilvy, there was this whole division that you've created that didn't exist before. But actually, I think is the foundation for everything because if you don't understand who you're talking to, and what's going to encourage them to make that move forward, exactly as you said, everything else that you do is just going to miss the mark. I think that's fascinating because the examples that you've given there have all been around reducing that friction to help people get to the end result that you're trying to encourage them to do. So making it as easy as possible for them to complete that.
0: And there's a lovely thing here, because sometimes what you need to do is add friction. I mean, you're you're completely right. In the the majority of cases, what you want something to do is to seem very natural, uh, you know, to minimise awkwardness, to minimise friction. On occasion, you actually want to add it. Because okay. there are occasions where something may seem too good to be true um you know there are, I'll give you an example where you want to add friction oddly is if you have an offer which has some effort attached to it. The redemption rate will be hugely higher if, for example, I say, if you answer these 20 questions, I'll give you a, um, you know, a £5 off voucher against something or other. The likelihood you'll redeem that is inordinately higher than if I just give you the voucher without asking you to do anything in return. So there are, mm-hmm. this is the wonderful thing, which is I often make this point about behavioural science – one of the reasons I think it's it's often frustrating to people who want the world to be a very neat place is that the opposite of a good idea can be another good idea. Yeah. You know, there aren't completely hard and fast rules. Sometimes you want to reduce difficulty, sometimes you want to add it a bit. You know, for example, I mean, this is a really weird one, we, a very interesting conversation with Dan Ariely once where we observed that everybody in the pharmaceutical industry tries to make drugs really easy to take. So you make the pills as small as possible and, you know, you make the whole thing as unobtrusive as possible. And we said, well, for pills which are daily, you might want to create a bit of a ritual where you have to take two pills and then dissolve them in water because then... It, it's easier to remember that you've forgotten, if you sort of I mean. If you create a little bit of a rigmarole around taking them every evening, maybe you have to dissolve them in water or grind them up. Uh, a, you're going to remember whether you've taken them or not. And B, you're going to have a niggling feeling of something missing. Whereas all you've got to do is pop it in your mouth and swallow. That's something which you can kind of, uh, you know, I mean... It's much, much more easy to to sort of overlook something a bit boring than something a bit complicated.
1: Yeah, you can almost do it unconsciously, can't you? Where you just go through the motions.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. When you go, well, did I did I do that or didn't I? You know, <laughs> and also you're not really going to be conscious of the fact that um, you have taken them, whereas something yeah. that involves a greater degree of complexity. Um, it will become. I mean, you know, maybe there are other behavioural solutions. Where what you do with drugs is you actually say, "Well, everybody remembers to clean their teeth." So what we actually want is a toothbrush with drugs in the handle.
1: Ah, okay. <laughs> That's getting a bit dangerous there. I <laughs> <So, you know,
0: laughs> think. You know, but there, there, are, there, there are. I mean, I mean, you know, medications, should we say? But I mean, there are other ways of looking at this, which is what rituals do people already have universally. Because if you can attach something to a pre-existing ritual the likelihood that it gets adopted again goes up.
1: Yeah. And I love that example that you've just given of asking the 20 questions and then getting the the 5 pound off at the end of it. And certainly how I can see that working with online marketing and email marketing in particular is using that interactive sign up process. So putting people through a quiz or asking them for a little bit more information where they do then get that reward at the end of it. And certainly that's something that we've seen definitely work with increasing subscriber rates and getting people engaged and bought into your brand and your messaging from the very first moment. So what do you think we need to do in terms of our marketing strategies, you know, at that kind of baseline level? What do we need to do to make sure that we're really focusing in on the customer? What are those psychological elements that we've got to start connecting into better as marketers?
0: Well, the first thing I think you've got to do is always consider that you might be doing something obvious, and therefore no one's questioned it because it seems obvious, but the opposite may be a good idea. So first of all, you've got to be unafraid of questioning conventional logic, um, because otherwise you go, well, we made made the check-in process as easy as possible, so that's great. And you have to be willing to sit there and be perverse enough to say, well, it probably is great that this, you know, that site registration is as easy as possible, but let's have a think about that. I mean, a famous example which everybody in email marketing should read is the blog post called the $300 million button, which is a piece of UX, where they simply changed the checkout procedure. I think it was for a large electronics retailer in the US, probably Best Buy, but they don't say. And. If you think about it very simply, what they did is they allowed people to check out as guest without making them sign in or register first. And then once you've made the purchase, you could then register by adding very few details. In fact, all you need to do is add a password, really Because you've given them your email address very willingly, because you want the person who's sending you the tumble dryer to have your email address. You've patently given them your name and home address, because without that, the bloody tumble dryer won't arrive anyway. Okay? So asking someone just to add a password is relatively small as an ask. Okay, I can now track my package. I'll do that. By asking people for the password at the beginning, if you think about it, and by asking people to register at the beginning, you're asking someone to type their name and address not in a frame of mind which thinks, I'm doing an essential part of ordering my tumble dryer. The frame of mind they're in is, they're making me jump through this tedious hoop just so I can populate their sodding database. Now, obviously, when it comes to getting your tumble dryer, the fact that you've already typed in your name and address and email address makes then the subsequent order of the tumble dryer a lot easier. But at the point you're typing that in, you're not 100% sure you're buying the thing. So you're giving away data to someone who isn't necessarily sending you a tumble dryer. And by flipping the order of the thing, They didn't make it any easier overall to buy something in pure labour terms, but in psychological terms, the annoyance of feeling you were typing in your address and postcode just to populate a bloody database rather than to provide the address to which your tumble dryer was to be sent made it feel very different. In the first case, it felt essential and a necessary part of of the purchase process. Uh, In the other part, it just felt like a pain in the ass. And so th- those little things, being able to say, actually, it's not only a question of how difficult this process is. Are we sure we're doing this in the right order? Another tip I'd give is start at the end. And I don't think marketers do this enough because we tend to sort of automatically look to advertising first. And my arguments have always been, well, look, if, you're, if, if your customer experience is no good, okay, There's no point in doing great conversion work because people are only going to buy from you once. And if people only buy from you once, actually what you're eventually doing over time is creating a pool of people who basically aren't going to buy you again or even going to give you the benefit of the doubt in a future communication. So you've got to get your experience right. Only when you've got your experience right should you then get your conversion right. Um, And then there's no point in getting your advertising right until you've got your conversion right. There's no point in getting things further up the funnel optimised until you've optimised what lies lower down. Because all you're doing is, if you like, creating desire without action. Um, And, um, uh, you know, that generally is just... Uh, is it, just annoying. I mean, there are cases, by the way, where the two are. Inter- I, I ought to make that point. There are cases where the two are kind of interdetermined. Uh, um, interdetermined. So you might want to do some advertising to improve your experience, because if because the problem with your experience is expectation. So you know there can be cases where. Um, knowing in advance what to expect is the best way to improve experience so it's it's not quite as simple as i suggested where you do you, you don't even consider the possibility of doing things further up the funnel to improve what happens lower down um, equally you know with conversion it's really really important that you know you you don't I mean, in, one, in one sense it's it, it's important that you don't sort of sell to people who don't really want to buy because again, that I mean, we never look at it like that. We look at it as an optimization problem. Actually, it isn't entirely. When you are actually selling, you want—if you want to have a long-running business—you want to sell to well-informed people, because people who buy something under a misconception um, will be much less happy than people who uh, who buy well, well-informed, assuming you want both advocacy and repeat purchase. This is where of course advertising gets a bit problematic. When you're selling one-off um, products like a pension plan or a funeral plan, you know, the, uh, you only really discover whether you made the right decision when it's too late. Um, you know, I think that's partly why those categories need to be more heavily regulated than say shampoo, where if the shampoo does a bad job, we learn it, you know, at the cost of £1.89 and we just learn not to buy it again. So I think there's something going on there which is really interesting. But then, only when you've got conversion rights should you you work further up the funnel again. And I, I think that's really important, by the way, because I think you know there's nothing worse than a great email marketing campaign for something that's a dud experience. And so I'm, I'm a big fan. Of, I'm a big fan of start at the end. And I think because of the traditional way in which advertising was the most expensive thing you did, and because historically that was how agencies got paid, they got paid on media commission, we still have a mentality where we start at the beginning. Now, I'm very willing to be contradicted on this, by the way, but it seems to me self-evident that you should really optimise a process from the back and work forwards. And we tend to do the opposite, uh, you know, so so I mean, actually, the other thing about uh, you know about both customer experience and conversion is that the other reason to start there is they are the areas where you can spend tiny sums and have huge effects. Um, and the other the other thing you need going back to the golden age of direct marketing is you need freedom to experiment. So one of the things we need to realise in the digital world is experimentation is cheaper. It's bro- broadly speaking something you can do discreetly by just assigning different things to random subsets of people, provided that's not unethical. Um, and Most of the time it isn't, I would argue. So it, We've got to be cautious of that. Um, uh, and it's also, by the way, n- much more than the conventional marketing. Not only is it discreet and, and, and affordable and capable of being done on a small scale, um, your less successful experiments can be killed off very, very fast. So, you know, in, in newspaper age, you know, you'd probably committed to put a particular creative execution in, uh, you know, uh, in, in, in five newspapers, for example, um, and it, you, they'd end up running long after you knew that there was a more successful creative execution that could replace it. Now, in the digital world, theoretically, at least, it's possible to actually be much braver in terms of what you test, uh, simply because uh, the failures can be cancelled much faster e-telligence energizing your email
1: marketing with kate barrett for more specialist advice to help you create email marketing that gets results visit e-focusmarketing.com I I totally agree with everything that you've just said, and I think this is such a fantastic way to look at it. You know, as email marketers, obviously we're focusing in on one area, but we have to think about how the rest of our business is interacting. We need to work with all of the other departments to make sure that we have a cohesive message, that we're all working on that customer experience and how each of those different marketing elements and the connections that we have with the customer all work together.
0: I'll give you a nice example. So this is a free tip to anybody. If there's anybody out there who works for TaskRabbit or who works for Trusted Traders uh, or who works for any of those kind of home handymen, the Uber for handiwork, as you might call them. Mm-hmm. I think they've got the order wrong and they always start in their advertising communications by asking you what you need done. Okay, and I think there's an inherent psychological inefficiency in that, which is I already know that. Okay, I already know what I need done. What it should be saying is when are you next free and at home all day? Now, I work from home most Fridays. Now, if I could say I'm at home this Friday, the following Friday and the Friday after that. What can you do for me? And they said, we can repair a watch base and put up shelves, erect a plasma screen TV. And I could say, can you do all that the Friday after next? And they say, Yes. Okay? I go, right, bring it on. Because I think you can get once you know when someone's free and at home, you've cracked the greater part of the coordination problem. Uh, okay. And then there's a whole load of incremental work you can sell on top of that. And I think they're doing that the wrong way around by saying, What do you need done? Now the likelihood is I think most homes in Britain have three or four things they wanted done. And if they can actually find the magical way of getting all four things done by only taking one day off work, they or even not taking a day off work because they're at home anyway doing video calls okay then actually that's going to be a total deal breaker and i think they've missed that yeah so i'd be really intrigued to see if any of those people want to get in touch with me i'd be very very happy in talking about how i think you know it's a case where you you've got the branding right you've probably you know you've probably got the whole back end mechanism right but there's something about your choice architecture you've missed
1: that's fascinating because actually what it is is digging down into what is the real problem. The real problem isn't that they need, yeah, that they need a TV put up. The problem is that actually they need it put up, but they need it when they're at home and it's, it's almost that so what, isn't it? Everything that you say, dig down into what is the actual problem that somebody is trying to solve? How is it impacting on their life? And then solve that rather than the, the product or the service at the beginning. So I love that.
0: And there's also, when you think about it, the fear that if you just book one guy to put up your flat screen TV and you and he, and he doesn't turn up, you've kind of wasted the whole day. I mean, it, of course, if you're working from home anyway, you haven't really wasted a day.
1: So when we're writing our Email copy in our marketing sense and creating those campaigns. (laughs) What are those key elements that we've got to consider in order to tap into those unconscious desires? You know, what are some really practical things?
0: Really, really huge attention to what seem to be trivial differences, often just in the use of a single word. So, for example, let's say you want people to give you information, you want them to answer a questionnaire. Um, there is a huge difference between saying we want your opinion and we want your advice in terms of people's the engagement that will that will generate in hostage negotiation i've just discovered reading online uh, they never ever say we need to talk they say we need to speak because for some weird reason the word talk and the word speak, although in our conscious brain we'd think they were more or less interchangeable, they arouse a very different emotional association. And so apparently one of the worst things you can say as a hostage negotiator is to say, we want to talk to you, which maybe arouses all sorts of uh, assumptions of you know, being told off when you're a child at school, I don't know, or you know, being told off you're a boss, whereas saying I need to speak to you is apparently different. Now that would surprise me, because I, you know, it's only by hearing that from experts that I ever would have known there was a difference between those two things. But the way in which you frame things, the order in which things are put, uh, you you've got to be very tolerant to the, of writers being quite angrily retentive, because the good writers know things instinctively that rational people aren't aware of, because it's very much tacit knowledge.
1: Okay, so really focus on those details, focus on testing, try different things, even if it goes against what you would usually think is the best way to do it, test it.
0: I'll give you a classic example here, by the way, I'm an absolutely classic example of where the opposite of a good idea is is a good idea. Sometimes pictures and graphics uh, will have a huge positive effect. Sometimes they'll have a massively negative effect. Because sometimes, if you're just too textual, people people engage too slowly and just aren't interested. Equally, there's a tendency that the really important stuff, like your order confirmation email, is text only. And so um, uh, th- that's a case where you have to test both options, I think, because I don't think there's a safe generalisation you can make. Uh, I made myself very unpopular with the creative team at Ogilvy once by suggesting that actually... Um, Uh, when upgrading people's home broadband, they should test simply a plain text letter. Because when you make it seem like a plain text letter, it seems like um, important information about your local phone service, which is that if you wish, you can get faster broadband. If you use the visual language of persuasion and salesmanship, weirdly, you make it, you make an easy decision more difficult because the very fact that you're being sold to causes you to think the very fact that they're selling this so hard must mean that there's a high degree of uncertainty about whether or not I should buy it.
1: I think, you know, what I'm really kind of getting from our whole conversation is, You've got to understand who you're talking to, but you've got to understand the differences between them. So test, test, test again, understand the customer experience, the journey that they're taking with you, optimize that end section of the funnel before you start driving more people in. Totally agree with all of that. So Rory, to kind of round us off, what is the one main tip that you would leave our audience with in terms of improving the success of their email marketing campaigns?
0: There's a tendency in this business to think that because we've made it a bit more scientific, it's the kind of science which has a single right answer.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that once you and we, we're trying to turn what we do into an optimization problem, and I think it's a mistake, actually. Um, I think we have to continually experiment. The, the second thing I'd say is, every now and then, take a program where you think you're doing it very well. And ask yourself this, okay, we can continue to incrementally improve what we're doing, but is there actually a moonshot here? So let's say, is there a way we can actually make this activity, maybe not 10 times, as Google would call it, maybe not 10 times as effective, but a multiple more effective? So there's, there's always this danger that I think we, we we get trapped in a kind of incrementalist world where we're we're tweaking around the sidelines, and generally the way to actually achieve a breakthrough, as opposed to an incremental improvement, is to fundamentally rethink some assumption. And so my tip is, if you if you can take any any field of economic or marketing activity, generally. There's always some underlying assumption in it, which may in many cases be true. But always ask yourself the question, what about this thing we've assumed isn't true? What's the thing that, what's the thing that everybody's fixated on? Are we fixated on the wrong metric, which may be completely possible, by the way?
1: Yes, absolutely. Okay?
0: Uh, you know, in other words, are our metrics completely wrong? Is it that we've assumed it's all about making it easier, whereas actually it's about making it slightly more difficult? Is it? Because now what generally happens, I think, in in, in business is that cert- a consensus always emerges as to what good email marketing is. And of course, one of the problems you have in marketing is that the more widespread that consensus becomes, the more email marketing starts to resemble other email marketing, for example, and... As a result, weirdly, it then contains the seeds of its own destruction. So regardless of anything else, the very fact that um, when something is believed by a large number of people, there's a greater and greater gain to you not believing it. So ask yourself, what are the conventions, what are the assumptions? Are we just fundamentally wrong about it? Is there something there that people believe that they're fundamentally wrong about? Or is there a metric that really matters that we've completely neglected? In other words, so the example I give at a huge scale is what Jobs did with Apple. Lots and lots of people were saying, what, how powerful can we make a phone? Clock speed, you know, memory capacity, storage capacity, you know, a bit of screen size, but not much. But it was all about the capability of a phone. And Steve Jobs came along and asked a different question, which is, it's not just what your phone can do, it's how it feels while you're doing it. The second thing you've got to do is, go even further, by the way, I always say you can't, you can't listen to consumers for the truth, To some extent, you can't even listen to yourself because we don't have full introspective access to the forces that lie behind our decisions. And um, as a result, uh, you've got to be very, very careful about listening to what consumers want. As Henry Ford said, if I'd asked people what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. Um, And so at some level, um, it's also useful to say, Um, If there's something which everybody believes is true and which consumers reiterate, strangely, there's a high chance that that may be wrong, because the number of times that consumers actually give an accurate account of the reasons behind their actions is relatively small. So I, th- so I think, I think one that I always regard this, I occasionally jokingly say that behavioral science is the science of knowing what economists are wrong about. And one of the th- reasons I say that is if you go into any sphere of activity and go, I bet if we look at this whole category, everybody believes in something that's perfectly logical, that consumers believe is perfectly sensible, that a- an economist would say makes perfect sense, but it might be wrong. I mean, the assumption being that you drop the price if a product isn't selling. Here's an interesting one, by the way, um, which has baffled me. Um, This probably doesn't work in women's clothing so well, but in men's clothing, before you put clothes on sale when you reach the end of a line, shouldn't you email people who've bought them before and say, this line is coming to an end, so if you'd like a spare pair, buy them now? I've never, I've never understood why nobody, you know. I've bought loads and loads of pairs of trousers and things online. I've never understood why nobody's done that to me because I'd pay full price if I knew, actually, I really like those trousers or that's my favourite shirt. You know, we've all, all blokes have a kind of favourite shirt. And looking back, we wish we'd bought seven of them, but, you know, we can never find it ever again. And in the same way, it always strikes me as a bit weird that, um, uh, you know, that uh, nobody does that. Here's a product you've bought. Now, I get loads of emails saying the store's having a sale. I never get emails saying we're running out of this thing, so if you want to buy a second one in a different colour, now's your last chance...
1: Yeah, and I tell you what, Rory, that's because a lot of companies don't have the data in the right place. They don't understand and don't want to look from that customer-centric point of view. They're thinking about it from the business point of view, whereas actually they can make bigger margins, more revenue by just turning that thinking around as to what would help our customers rather than just, you know, not everything is about price.
0: It shouldn't be too difficult when you're putting something on sale or end of line sale It shouldn't be that difficult to do this. But what it is, is that this is a really important thing. You know, marketers are uniquely valuable and essential. Not because they're particularly clever people, necessarily, okay? Not because they're very good business people, necessarily. Although there are people who are both, okay? But the real essential... um, role of a marketer in any decision-making unit is there's nobody else in the business who's looking at the business as experienced by a customer through one pair of eyes over time okay that's why nobody noticed the stupidity of that business where you can't get a charging point until you've got an electric car okay because they weren't looking at it through the lens of non ergodic consumer experience okay path-dependent Time only moving in one direction. Most businesses have data sources which present information in aggregate. And it's really worth remembering, by the way, that the aggregate customer probably doesn't really exist, actually. That actually, there's a really interesting finding from someone in cockpit design uh, with the U.S. Air Force who found that actually the number of people who are average across six or seven, I think out of 4,000 people, no one was average in all 10 bodily dimensions. (laughs) So the average person is actually surprisingly weird and so understanding that understanding that actually um okay your business might be doing very well on average but if that's simply because it's very good at acquiring new customers who never come back you haven't really got a business
1: definitely yeah
0: so the argument i always make is that the lack of boardroom representation for marketing is really dangerous to a business because you can do things which make perfect sense to all the people who are looking at aggregate spreadsheets which, from the point of view of the individual consumer, are really, really dumb. I'll give you you a fantastic example of that, actually, which is um, at a very simple level, Okay, This is one of the funniest things I've ever noticed in UX, which is if you have two products and one's more expensive than the other and there isn't a clear way of explaining what you're getting for your extra money, okay, you can't buy either of them. So funnily enough, once I actually um uh there's a wonderful wonderful i i hope i help them out there uh there's a, a thing called the is it the sleepover company which makes sort of posh sleeping bags the idea being if you stay in someone's house rather than forcing them to change all their sheets you just sleep either on top of the bed or inside the bed in one of these rather nice linen bags and therefore you save all the problem and they had two versions in two different price points but i couldn't work out what, what the what, what the actual difference was i would have been happy to buy the more expensive one if he just said actually to be honest it would just said you know slightly different linen brass zip something i wasn't even bothered about if i knew what i was paying for i would have happily paid the extra if we can't make sense of a choice in real time as we're being led through that choice we make no choice at all and so you know logic would suggest both of them the expensive one and the cheap one were worth it to me so logically I should have bought just the cheap one and thought it's probably just as good but because I couldn't actually frame the comparison properly, I didn't buy either I'll give you a classic example of a large person who did that, Nestle um, who are normally incredibly astute they were selling the Virtuo and the Virtuo Plus coffee machines one of which is automatic, one of which is manual and they were selling them at the same price now you can't uh, you can't call something the plus and not charge more for it because it just creates complete bafflement. Which is, OK, if this one's got an extra feature but it's the same price, what's what's the downside that I'm not getting? Uh, you, there are two things you could do. You could, re, you could change the name so you could call it classic and automatic. You'd probably just about get away with it there. But if you use the word plus in the name... And you don't make it £5 more expensive. Basically, and I I spoke to salesmen in the store about this, and they said, no, I I remember there was a reason, but it does our head in too. And we get loads of people who are kind of dithering over it. Um, It's probably a good idea to have two variants, because you'll sell more having variants just by dint of having two variants, as we said about post and phone. But but, um, that's the kind of mistake we've really, really got to avoid
1: fantastic well what a fantastic wrap-up to leave the interview on (laughs) you know we could talk about this all day (laughs) so Rory thank you so much for joining me today of course if anybody listening wants to find out more they can get hold of your two books the wiki man and alchemy the surprising power of ideas that don't make sense how else can they get in touch with you Rory if they want to find out more
0: very simple. Twitter is the best thing. Uh, it's at Rory Sutherland, all one word. Yeah, fantastic. that's easily the best.
1: Brilliant. Thank you so much for joining me and for sharing all of that amazing knowledge, all of those tips and all of the fantastic stories as well. I think it really brings the power of psychology to life.
0: Thank you very much indeed.
1: If anyone listening would like to find out more about email marketing, of course, make sure that you follow us on YouTube, that you follow us on Spotify, on iTunes, through whichever provider you're using to listen to this podcast. And don't forget to give us a rating as well. So until next time, I'm Kate Barrett, and I'll say goodbye. Thanks, everyone.
0: Intelligence. Energizing your email marketing with Kate Barrett. Head to our website for downloads and show notes. e-focusmarketing.com/eintelligence.